In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And today, we are joined by the AJC Capital Correspondent, Washington Correspondent, Tia Mitchell, who is fresh off of her trip to Nevada. Tia, good morning. Good morning. How you doing? Great. And we are gearing up for the first early early vote that really reflects Georgia. I was in Iowa, New Hampshire. You were in Nevada. We, we, there was very interesting dynamics there, great debate in Nevada especially, and we'll talk about that. But really, we're gearing up for South Carolina. Both of us will be in the Palmetto State over the next couple of days because this is the first election that really reflects Georgia's Democratic electorate. It, it does matter because, you know, those other states do not look like Georgia. Nevada got closer because it does have a sizable, you know, population of voters of color, unlike New Hampshire and Iowa. But it's still so different. It's out west. It's it's um, most of its voters of color are uh, Latino. And so you're right. South Carolina, with that sizable African-American voting population, you know, that's the state the first state in the South. And that's the one that's going to, you know, give the best indicator of of what voters in the South, like Georgia, are thinking. Yeah. And when we say it's more reflective of the state demogra- dem- demographics and electorate, we don't mean, you know, population wise, because Georgia is obviously much bigger and a much more um, different state with, with, you know, half the population essentially being Metro Atlanta, whereas South Carolina, um, the population is divided up into into set up several medium-sized markets. But what we mean is that both states, um, the Democratic electorate is about 60% African-American. So it's the first state where a majority of the vote will be decided by African-American voters, especially, you know, comparing to New Hampshire and Iowa, which are both broadly, you know, 90-something plus percent white states. Um, New Hampshire in particular is much richer, older, and less diverse than Georgia. Um, and Iowa is, is a little bit more rural than than than, than parts of Georgia, especially the, the Democratic electorate. Um, but still, not, not exactly a good heart. Even though Iowa and Georgia had similar voting tendencies in terms of Democrats, not exactly the best harbinger of of how 
uh, Georgia vote. South Carolina, on the other hand, our our voters, our Democratic voters, tend to you know go in lockstep with whoever South Carolina picks. Yeah, and I'm you know this is my first time covering elections from a Georgia perspective, so I'm really excited to get over to South Carolina. You know, it's a neighboring state, so it does you know reflect Georgia in a lot of ways. Um, even though you're right, there's not that major city in South Carolina like Atlanta and Metro Atlanta really drives politics in Georgia. But it will be interesting to see. And, you know, that is that vote is going to come about, what, three or four weeks before Georgia. So not only is it that indicator indicator, but Mm -hmm. based on those results, you're going to see how candidates approach Georgia as a result. You're exactly right. And it's going to be interesting because usually Georgia is on that super Tuesday date. We called it the SEC primary in 2016 that Brian Kemp kind of coined that term as the secretary of state of Georgia. It's a group of mostly Southern states that voted. Um, but in 16 and in years, years past and other elections um, past, that super Tuesday vote was directly after days after um, South Carolina's election. And so in 2016, candidates went essentially right from South Carolina to hit the Super Tuesday trail that included Georgia. In this case, though, Super Tuesday is much bigger, right? You've got California, you've got Texas. But in this case, Georgia has delayed its primary vote to March 24th. Really, the main reason is to get a whole sweep of new voting machines in place in time for that big vote. Um, so you can... You can definitely see how this election, the dynamics are going to be so different. It's, it's even hard to poll for, for Georgia right now. We, and we will talk about a UGA poll that came out just a few days ago. But we're not sure even which candidates will be in the race by March 24th in Georgia because so much will change between Saturday and next Tuesday when South Carolina and then the Super Tuesday votes. Um, there, there will not still be a giant field of candidates in that race Uh, following the Super Tuesday votes. There's just no way that this field can stay this big um, after this first sweep of votes comes in. Right. And and what's so challenging is not just the candidates that are dropping off the ballot, but essentially Michael Bloomberg is just now getting on the ballot. He really Mm -hmm. is focusing on Super Tuesday. And so, yes, he's starting to participate in the debates. And of course, he's campaigning everywhere. But... You know, he's not he wasn't on the ballot in early states. And so there's just now starting these kind of true tests of if he can create results at the polls. Just but at the same time, you especially for Super Tuesday, you're going to have candidates that just cannot compete. Like you mentioned, it's not just that there are so many states which has its own challenges of being able to fan out your campaign nationwide. But there are these huge delegate rich states, expensive states to campaign in like um, California. And so there are just going to be some candidates that are not going to they're going to realize they don't have the money. They don't have the resources to be competitive in Super Tuesday, you know. But right now, all in, there are about eight Democratic candidates still kind of in the mix. Um, And that's a lot of people. It's a lot. And, and as you mentioned, Bloomberg has really invested in those, not just the Super Tuesday states, but the states that follow it, like Georgia. Look, he has 53 staffers in Georgia, which is a, a enormous amount of staffers. I mean, the next closest candidate with that sort of apparatus in Georgia is Elizabeth Warren, who has about a half dozen 
Um, and then behind her, there's, you know, a, a candidate here there might have a, a stray staffer, but there's been no real infrastructure in Georgia from anyone other than Bloomberg and, and Senator Warren, um, who may not be in the race by the time March 24th rolls around. And for that matter, neither might Michael Bloomberg. Let's talk about that debate he had. You were in Nevada. You were at the debate. Um, the, all eyes were on Michael Bloomberg, and he had a rough night. He had a very rough night. And we knew that, you know, this was his first debate. So the other candidates have been on stage a lot. That was the mm-hmm. ninth Democratic debate of this primary season. So they're already, you know, experienced in this and they've already kind of faced the tough questions and faced kind of the the attacks. And this was a lot of attention was on him for obvious reasons because He's starting to do so well in the polls because he's spending so much money. And then on top of that, this was his first time having to answer to all of those kind of attacks. And quite frankly, they're substantial. You know, it's one thing to, you know, some of the, you know, you might roll your eyes at some of the criticisms that some of the candidates lob at each other, you know. But for Michael Bloomberg, because he does have his history as mayor of New York City, he does have documented cases of being accused of sexual assault. You have stop and frisk. You have the the hundreds of millions of dollars of his personal wealth he's spending. Those are those are you know that's not going to be easy to explain away. And um, people, a lot of voters came away from the debate unsatisfied with his answers about these kind of serious topics. Yeah, we, we did a, like a sort of informal survey of, of the elected officials who had endorsed Michael Bloomberg before this. No one, no one quite came out and said publicly they're having second thoughts, but certainly they were getting a lot of pushback, especially that day after the debate, on why they decided to go in for Michael Bloomberg. And remember, some of the most... Um, some of the biggest names in Democratic politics in Georgia have already endorsed him. That includes Lucy McBath, who... Um, who, who, who was the recipient of millions of dollars of spending from one of Michael Bloomberg's gun control groups in the 2018 midterm. Uh, another one who is who is um, said he would endorse Michael Bloomberg is DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman and, and State Senator Jen Jordan, who, who also has her eye on higher office down the road, also endorsed Michael Bloomberg. So you, you're seeing a lot more focus um, on on those candidates to see if they're having second thoughts about Michael Bloomberg. And so far, none has come out and said that. And a lot will a lot will depend not just on how Super Tuesday goes, but really how the next debate will go in Charleston on Tuesday. And we'll, we'll be there for that. You were in the debate hall in Vegas. What was the environment? What was the mood like? The climate like after after that debate? Were, were people with the Bloomberg campaign on, on full on defense mode? They were, and you know they sent a surrogate to the spin room, and he was surrounded by dozens of members of the media, and you know they tried to put a as positive of a spin. I think, you know, I think they were smart enough to stop, stop short of saying, you know, he had a good night, you know, they didn't, they didn't go that far, but you know, they, they acknowledged that yeah. it, was, it was not there than, than other evening. Exactly. You know, they acknowledged that, um, he's answering tough questions, but they basically said, you know, he showed up, he's going to continue to show up. He's going to continue to, you know, outline his vision for America and and answer whatever questions are posed toward him. So, I mean, 
I've told people, you know, I, I, I think it's interesting, you know, you can't, you can't say that he gave, you know, these um, answers that look good on TV or the politically expedient answers. He clearly was uh, giving answers that reflected his conscience and that reflected how he truly feels about some of these things um, for better or for worse. You know, he could have easily said, you know, I I rebuke stop and frisk. I, we should have never done it. It was it was bad. And that's what some people want to hear him say. That's not what he said, because that's not what he believes. And now that's up to Democratic voters to decide whether that makes him uh, more or less attractive in their eyes. You know, and the same thing when it came to releasing people who've accused him of sexual assault from their non-disclosure agreements. He could have easily said, yeah, if they want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I'll sign the paperwork. I'll release them. Um But he didn't. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. We signed an agreement and we're going to let the agreement stand. And now it's on it's up to the voters to decide. Do you do you like that answer? Do you not like that answer? And how does that reflect on your overall opinion of Michael Bloomberg as a candidate for president? You know, he seemed that question about releasing the women from from those nondisclosure agreements. He seemed completely off caught off guard by the question like he wasn't expecting it and and to me that was one of the first that it seemed clear that was coming you'd seen stories in the Washington Post and other national media outlets about those sexual harassment um, complaints that have been filed and about you know that the, the the alleged victims couldn't talk about it so you know to me as just a, a you know a observer far off in Atlanta I could tell those questions were definitely going to come but he just seemed completely stunned by them and, and, and not ready with a, a quick answer yeah and I I you know I can't decide whether I think he was stunned or whether I just think he was indignant because mm-hmm. you know he's used to kind of you know, I said what I said, you know, and to me, that's how it came across is, you know, he's used to a man who calls the shots. He's used to being the boss. He's used to not being questioned about his decision making. So in some ways, I feel like that was just kind of where he was coming from. It was like, no, um, they had non-disclosure agreements. And I said what I said. I'm not going to release them, you know, um, because I I. I can't imagine they weren't prepared for yeah. th- that to come up. You know, they had to know it was coming up. But again, I give him credit for at least not coming up with some, you know, PC answer. It's like, no, um, they're non-disclosure agreements and they're in place. But who knows? You know, there's another debate coming up and he might have a totally different answer. I was about to say a, t- a tip to the Bloomberg campaign as if, as if they don't already know this, but it's going to come up again in Charleston on the Tuesday debate. Now, I'll be there. You were in the Vegas debate, as we mentioned, and I just want to give our listeners a sense of what it's like. This is your second debate now with the AJC, second presidential debate. Um, you were doing a live blog, you were live tweeting, and you had a great recap of the debate. What's it like being in the debate hall? You're not actually in the same room as, as the candidates, but being in that media center um, close by, what's it like trying to juggle all those different plates at the same time? It's definitely a hectic um, night, you know, um, but I always bring plenty of snacks. So that's like tip number one for me. It's like bring snacks, especially um, because you can't once the debate starts, there's no getting up to run, you know, to stand in line and order a cheeseburger, you know. So once things get started, you're there. Yeah. And um, 
and it's just kind of getting in the zone, being focused. It was it was really cool just having that multimedia approach. That's the great thing about the AJC is we did a Facebook Live right before the debate. And then we had a live blog and we had Twitter. And, and then we have the article after the debate. So it's like, you know, comprehensive, whatever way you like to get your recaps and your news, the AJC, we can provide it for you. And it's We've just got it for, you. for me... Yeah, it's just about getting focused and listening. You got to pay attention because once you kind of get mentally zone out, then he's like, oh, my goodness, what did they just say? And then you got to, you know, so me, it's like uh, my short attention span. I've got to work on that for those two hours. Yeah, it's, it's stay focused and try not to miss anything because that's another hard part. It's not like you have DVR there where you can go back and try to get the comments. Exactly. And you do get transcripts. The- but they come like 20 minutes, yes. 30 minutes late. Yes, they're delayed. And the good thing, I mean, there are other journalists all around. I was um, in a line uh, with a bunch of political reporters and the Dallas Morning News had a reporter nearby and Voices, Voices for America was on my other side. And so, you know, somebody says something, everybody's like, well, what did they just say? Or, you know, we kind of make sure everybody stays in the loop because it is kind of isolating in a way. The media center is not near where the debate is actually happening. And so um, it's 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 almost like a, a big watch party, but with a bunch of journalists and political junkies. We also had some interesting, two interesting polls come out about the presidential race and, and really the state of Georgia politics in general um, over the last couple of days. The first was a landmark communications poll released by WSB. Um, they gave us our first uh, updated look at the state of the presidential race here in Georgia. And of course, this is going to drastically change because the field of candidates will drastically change before March 24th. But as of a couple of days ago, it showed Biden with a pretty hefty lead in Georgia. And that was fueled by very strong support, about 41 percent of the support from African-American voters. Um, Bloomberg and Biden were um, both kind of locked in a battle for second place. And most other candidates lagged far, far behind them. So it shows you that Georgia is still Biden's to lose. He has, he has built his firewall up here pretty high. But again, everything depends for Biden on how he does in South Carolina uh, on Saturday. And it's hard to see him going on if he doesn't get first place, even if it's a close second place. I mean, he, he might still push through Super Tuesday, but it's real hard to, to see his campaign with that sort of momentum. And we've seen South Carolina break a lot of other candidates Uh, including Jeb Bush just four years ago. Yeah, I was interested when I saw how little money Biden's been spending. And to me, that's an indication that he doesn't have much money to spend. And so he really needs, you know, he did pretty, pretty good at the debate in Las Vegas, you know, reestablishing himself as like, hey, I'm the guy who actually has done this stuff. I'm the guy who actually knows what I'm talking about. Um, But there's he doesn't have that energetic base that a lot of the other candidates have. You know, Bernie has an energetic base. Bloomberg has been able to, you know, his power and his influence and his money to to kind of surge in the polls. You've got folks who are are in for Warren and in for Buttigieg. But I just don't feel like Biden kind of has that energy behind him. And so you're right. If he can't produce at the polls, 
how is he going to raise the money to be viable after Super Tuesday? I think that's the thing. It's like it's not just the bragging rights that he needs, but he needs that momentum to shake some more dollars loose or he won't be able to compete in Super Tuesday because we've already established how 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 expensive and how big of a task that is. You're right. And thanks to Bernie Sanders' army of small dollar donors, he has no problem raising cash. Pete Buttigieg, too, has had very little problem raising cash. He's been a surprisingly strong fundraiser, although it hasn't it translated into basically neck and neck finish in Iowa and a close second in New Hampshire. But his viability in the South is going to be a big question. But Bernie Sanders is, has emerged as this, as this, as the front runner, and he's he's starting to actually emerge not just in some of these early voting states, but also in national poll. Poll after poll after poll shows him at least, if not in first, in a close second um, to 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 Joe Biden. So, or to Michael Bloomberg in some of the polls. So he has really established himself, and he will have the money. Um, he has no problem having uh, raising cash, and he showed that in 2016, where where he re- he had a formidable fundraising machine, and has, has done nothing but rev up this cycle too. So Bernie Sanders, um, the the question in South Carolina and in the southern states that follow will be: Can Bernie Sanders, someone who was trounced in Georgia, right, got got about quarter of the vote against Hillary Clinton in Georgia in 2016, can he show any sort of uh, credibility here. I mean, and we're not even talking about a, a first place finish if it gets that. For, but can, but can he can he end up in a in a solid second place in a place like South Carolina or Alabama or Mississippi when they vote or Virginia I and mean, these southern states where he's traditionally start, struggled? Because if he can start showing that he can he can thrive in these southern states, that it's a it's an entirely new ball game. Right, and you know. He benefits from the mm-hmm. wide open field because Buttigieg and Bloomberg and Biden and Klobuchar, um, a lot of them are all vying for like that moderate Democrat base that, you know, Bernie Sanders is too far left for them, you know. But for those who won't vote for Bernie, they've got a lot of other candidates to choose from. And so that's why it leaves Bernie in in those, you know, if he can still keep doing well, you know, just getting 30 percent of the vote and the rest, you know, the other candidates fight for the rest. That still is going to allow him to to get a formidable lead. That'll be hard to surpass in the delegate count. You're exactly right. I mean, the divided field helps Bernie and it helps Bloomberg, too, if he can recover from the debate, of of course. Mm -hmm. But. The fact that the the field is so fractured, and look, the first couple votes we've seen the moderate candidates still outpoll the more liberal candidates. The Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders together don't combine with the support for Biden and Buttigieg and Klobuchar. There's Steyer, um, a little bit. They don't combine for for the same support that Biden and Buttigieg and Klobuchar and other mainstream candidates have have been getting. Um, but look, he still has this fervent base of support. And that's what's going to be really interesting. And I'm going to ask you in a second what you think, what, what you're watching in South Carolina. But Steyer, Tom Steyer, he, he, he is also, not just Joe Biden's not the only candidate who has, who's put everything on the line in South Carolina. And there's a second billionaire in the race, and it's Tom Steyer. And he has been polling in second place throughout really the last few weeks, uh, second or third place. So a strong showing for him um, could make this race even more interesting. Right. And I'm sure, you know, Steyer sees an entree because 
if you're going to choose between your billionaires, um, you know, I think what he's trying to say is I'm the less problematic of of the billionaires running. Um, but what's what's hurting Steyer is if he continues to fail to qualify for these debates that, again, it's not just being on the stage to answer questions, because, again, he can pay for money and have all the ads, but it's that indication of legitimacy that comes when you qualify for the debates and what it says, what it indicates when you don't qualify. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I think for Steyer, you know, he's got us, like you said, he's got to do well in South Carolina because he needs those indicators to folks that he's a viable candidate because we know that's one of the big differences is that viability, who can beat Trump, is paramount to most Democratic voters this time. Well, you'll be out there at the end of the week, uh, right in time for the for the election. Uh, what are you going to be looking for out there? You'll be based in Charleston, but I'm sure you'll be elsewhere throughout the state um, as all the candidates narrow in on, on South Carolina. Yeah, it'll be my first time in South Carolina, actually. And I want to just re- really see who is resonating with like really regular people you know what i mean and we always say that like Mm -hmm. get the average voter you know um but that's really i want to hit up some beauty shops and some barber um shops and and some some local coffee shops and really just see because again when you're an early voting state you are bombarded by the candidates you know these people can't turn on the tv without seeing a political ad And, you know, this last week, there's going to be so many forums and rallies and events and meet and greets. Um, And those will be interesting to cover for sure. But what's breaking through? Who's breaking through and why? That's what I'm curious about. Yeah. Being on the ground matters and, 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 and going to as many of these rallies as you can. In Iowa and New Hampshire, I went to rallies for all five of the main candidates in both states. And you could tell. And it didn't take a break, uh, you know, a rocket scientist. You could tell that Biden was losing steam. You could tell that Buttigieg had all sorts of energy. Of course, Bernie had 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 a you know upsurge and uptick of enthusiasm. And you could also tell that the, the Amy Klobuchar was on the move. And so, in 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 New Hampshire, it was so apparent to just about everyone that even Joe Biden decided to pack up and go to South Carolina mm-hmm. as votes were being cast. So it matters being there and and sensing the energy and talking to to real voters. And that's why I'm pumped that you're going to be out there. And we're going to be in different parts of the state. You'll be in uh, around the Charleston area. I'll be probably closer to Greenville. But um, we're going to have a lot of fun over the next couple couple days. Let's do it. Yes. Well, thanks for joining us. And I will see you in the Palmetto State. Thank you. That's all for this edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Visit AJC.com slash politics for all the latest in Georgia news. I'm Greg Bluestein signing off. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. The celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents. Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. 
Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.